From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 108. We actually are long overdue for a Q&A, so we're gonna rock the October 2021 Q&A. I've had quite a few inquiries that have stockpiled over the last few months, so um, we're gonna hit them all as best we can today. Um, Picked out some of the best ones that I think will be most applicable for the most folks in our audience. Um, So let's get to it. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for Sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on the road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. Our first question is, why do some athletes come back to pitch better after Tommy John surgery? Um, There are a few different directions that I can go with my response. But I think it's really important to discuss this first by saying that you you can make no mistake about it. The native ligament will always be stronger than the reconstructed ligament. So over the years, I've heard stories. I can't say I've ever really had 
people that have asked me this uh, myself, but I have had stories, um, you know, shared with me from orthopedic surgeons, physical therapists, where parents, you know, coaches, kids have asked whether having Tommy John surgery was a good strategy to help them throw harder. And it absolutely isn't. Um, what God gave you is far better than whatever, you know, a surgeon can give you in a reconstruction format. So make sure that you, uh, you take care of your arm in the first place. Now, with that said, when we hear about players that come back um, from Tommy John surgery and they throw harder than before it, I think there are a few different scenarios that we actually have to take into account. So, so first, and I think most commonly, these pitchers may have been throwing with an unstable elbow for an extended period of time. What we're seeing very commonly in athletes that are hard throwers who blow out in their 20s is when you know orthopedic surgeons go in to do these reconstructions, they're actually seeing previous areas of calcification on the ligament. So what's happening when kids are you know, 14, 15, 16 years old and they're going out there and they're having high pitch counts or they're throwing with a ton of velocity you know, before they're you know, maybe from a musculoskeletal standpoint prepared to handle it, they wind up laying down smaller injuries on the ligament that over the course of time become areas of weakness that eventually you know, rupture. So um, often these individuals have been throwing with unstable elbows for an extended period of time. So, so first, you know, we have scenarios where athletes may have had, you know, extended periods of downtime, maybe, you know, things that they manage conservatively. And we see these periods of, of downtime, they often are, you know, situations where an athlete hasn't had the, the continuity in their training and their preparation to really optimize their mechanics, to feel confident in their delivery and to, you know, in turn throw as hard as they possibly could have. So in many cases, it's a, an athlete who's had a very inconsistent uh, training schedule and competition schedule in the years that you know, precede the injury. The other thing, though, that is a very important consideration is that anytime you have a ligament that is either torn or overstretched, you may actually have a scenario where there's just a mechanical energy leak, where that joint is not in a good position to really transfer energy effectively during the delivery. So when we lay our arm back um, during the throwing motion, obviously it's shoulder external rotation, and there's also a little bit of kind of medial elbow gapping that takes place. If that gapping is, is excessive, we're not really in a great position to, to create force during the acceleration phase of throwing. So, you know, those are the first two considerations is inconsistent training calendar and, you know, mechanical inability to transfer force, you know, in someone who's had a broken elbow for an extended period of time. I think the second side of things speaks really to the rehab side of things where, you know, some athletes finally get serious about actually taking care of their bodies during a long rehab time period. You know, the average return uh, to, you know, previous level of competition for Tommy John surgeries is about 14 months. And, you know, as Jack, Dr. Jeff Dugas said on a, a previous episode of this podcast, there's a standard deviation of about six to eight weeks in either direction. But at the end of the day, you're getting at least a year to really get your body right. Um, so for some athletes, maybe they you know, get to work on rotator cuff strength and scapular control and thoracic spine mobility and positional breathing and all this stuff that, that puts them in the best position possible to be aligned and strong um, to impart force to a baseball. And I think there are other athletes where, you know, it's more about full body care. You know, I've seen a lot of athletes over the years who have put on 20 to 25 pounds, you know, over the course of that year by getting their lower half strong and, and moving some serious weights there. So, you know, we always look for, you know, with our athletes is symmetrical strength side to side in the upper body by the time they start to, you know, play catch at four or five months, whatever it may be. But um, what we often, you know, overlook is that there's also, you know, really seven to 10 
months that take place after that where athletes can really start to squat, deadlift, lunge, and, and do a lot more to really push athleticism to all new levels. We can train medicine ball, work hard, and, and do a lot of things on the, along those lines. And also just give them a little bit of a break from the, the stress of baseball to work on some more general athletic qualities that are gonna make them successful. So I, I think over the years we've seen a lot of athletes who have never really been serious about training, who got serious during you know, a long injury rehabilitation. And then third, you know, they, they may just address mechanical faults during the rehab period that allows them to not only move, you know, more safely, but also more efficiently. Um, and, you know, like the last thing I would, I would definitely, you know, also reiterate, which maybe touches a little bit further on the first point of that, you know, the native ligament will always be stronger than the reconstructive ligament. Just remember that the, the success rate on UCL reconstructions is actually very good. It's, you know, it's over 90%, in fact. However, don't overlook the fact that failures do happen. And they're often minimized, you know, just by survivorship bias in, in media reporting. Um, what happens to a lot of the players that, you know, have failed UCL reconstructions while well, they retire or we just don't hear about them because they don't return to their previous level of competition. Um, and we have to remember that while we're getting better and better with, you know, surgical approaches and, you know, more and more physical therapists are confident in, in overseeing these rehabs, the return to play standard, standard is actually probably getting higher and higher because velocities are ticking up across all levels of the game. So, you know, one of the things that I think will be interesting to see is whether five, 10 years from now, whether this question is actually a little legitimate one, will we see athletes come back um, to pitch better after Tommy John surgery? We're seeing more and more pitchers who are 100 mile per hour arms in the big leagues that are getting this, but we don't know whether they're actually going to be able to get all the way back to their top end velocities. Um, we do see a couple of the really prominent you know, elbow surgeons in the country who are doing some slightly different things with their really hard throwers. Um, I've actually been fortunate to manage a few of these myself, so I'm kind of keeping a close eye on how they go. But um, you know, there is an interesting future for hard throwers and Tommy John surgeries and what our expectations are of you know, really positive outcomes after these surgeries. So we've got to keep a close eye on it. Our second question is, what are some of the bigger mistakes you see athletes make with long toss? Um, let me preface this by saying that I am a huge long toss fan. Um, I know folks sometimes in the rehabilitation community in particular are a little bit harder on long toss um, because of a little bit of research that suggests that valgus stress you know, increases when we get out to a you know, considerable distance um, as compared to the mound. But I do think it's a scenario where we, we do need to push arm speed with athletes. And, you know, I think it delivers some important benefits even beyond just, you know, what our concerns are with the elbow. So um, we've seen guys long toss healthy for a long time. And I think it's important that we just understand how to do it correctly. And, and maybe that's where these answers will be, you know, useful. The first mistake I see is that, that athletes structure it incorrectly. And I'm reminded of a, a great line that I got from my good friend, Alan Jager, who's been a guest on the podcast a couple of times, who's, who's got a big, you know, uh, vested interest in, in long toss. And he talked about, impress me on the way in, not the way out. So I always tell our athletes, don't get a too aggressive too soon. The way out is kind of like a take your arm for a walk period. It's, you know, for those of you who, in the, who are in the north and understand what it's like to turn a furnace on for the first time in the winter, you know, you turn it on, it, you know, it makes some weird sounds, it smokes, and you worry if the house is going to burn down and then it's all fine. I look at you know the initial phases of, of a throwing program 
um, on a daily basis with long tosses kind of being like that. You just want to get the air out of the pipes and get it moving a little bit. Um, but the mistake that I see is that, you know, pitchers get too aggressive too soon and they're really letting it eat before they get all the way out there. Uh, instead, I actually want to see them be more aggressive on their, their pull down throws, their compression throws, whatever you want to call it, you know, where they get out to their max distance and they actually start to work down um, on top of the baseball and, and bring the release point, you know, closer to where it would be when they're actually pitching. Um, in other words, you're, you're effectively taking um, your compression throws, your pull-down throws to transition from your longest throwing distance to a flat ground session, um, you know, at the end where you can actually take some of that arm speed and sync it up in a more specific delivery and potentially even, you know, get off the mound. And, you know, certainly this is what you see with a lot of major league pitchers as they warm up in the outfield and then go to the bullpen pregame. But I think you can also do it really, really easily um, in your training. You know, in the context of, you know, these compression throws, usually it's every 20 to 30 feet on the way back in. So it almost amounts to a, a bit of a brisk walk in from your max distance. So if you have a pitcher that actually goes out and long tosses 300 feet, you know, he'd take compression throws at about 270, 240, 210, 180, 150, 120, 90, and 60 feet. Um, and, you know, I often joke with guys, and you certainly see it in the way that a lot of our throwers, you know, work on stuff is, you know, the last 60 feet should, should be a little bit scary um, to their throwing partners. And I've been, been fortunate to catch some pretty good ones of these over the years. And it is terrifying when you get a, an electric arm that, you know, is not just working on arm speed with, with fastballs, but also using it as an opportunity to maybe spin some breaking balls in flat ground or throw change-ups, whatever it may be. Um, you know, with that said, you know, I think we need to be careful about not just selling out for the dream and pitchers who, you know, don't consistently repeat their mechanics and, you know, may struggle with pitch design and things like that. It's, it's very easy to become, you know, and this is my second point, become a good thrower and not a good pitcher. Um, you know, if you can long toss 350 feet, but you're pitching at 80 to 82, you can probably stand to cut back a bit on your long tossing, spend more time focusing on your mound work to actually sync things up and use that general motor potential to your advantage. You know, likewise, if you're, you know, throwing a ball 350 feet consistently, but you have a, you know, a one to six uh, K to walk ratio and you're throwing balls to the backstop into the stands, you probably need to cut back on things a little bit to spend more time focusing on mound work to sync things up and, and actually throw strikes. You know, and, and last but not least, if you're, you know, a guy who's throwing 350, but you're, you know, consistently getting shelled because, you know, maybe you have some arm speed, but you don't have a, you know, a, a secondary offering, a breaking ball, a change up. Um, you can stand to cut back on your long tossing to spend more time focusing on mound work to, you know, learn some other pitches. Um, at the end of the day, there are tons of guys that throw hard nowadays. And, you know, we have a limited amount of recovery capacity that we can devote to our throwing volume. So, you know, maybe it's the kind of thing where you need to work on, on secondary stuff instead of just throwing the ball hard. So don't just become a good thrower and not a good pitcher. And there are a generation of guys that are like this, that they've long tossed till the cows come home. They spent hours and hours and hours just throwing weighted balls with no seams against a wall. Um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you have to remember you make your money with a baseball on the mound. So that should predominate your training volume and you should understand where you, you know, stand with respect to success with that five ounce ball. Um, third, I think there are some athletes that make the mistake of thinking that long toss covers, you know, all their needs. And the truth is that there are a lot of different factors that contribute to pitching success and longevity. You know, once you can throw a ball a long way, there is a tendency to think that you've done what you need to do to be successful. But in reality, there are a lot more things that you need to address to prepare your, prepare your body. And long toss is still pretty specific in the grand scheme of things. So you might be a great long tosser, but you might be missing out on a, a collection of other, you know, maybe general motor potential things that could really help you. So um, 
you know, it's often been said the best program is the one that you're not on. So the greatest benefits are usually derived from the things that you don't do particularly well. And I think over the years, we've seen a lot of guys who are kind of long toss rock stars and they're really lacking in the weight room or they've never really thrown med balls or, you know, they're not as good off the mound. So just understand that you might be a great long tosser and there's other things to work on. And then last but not least, I would say, you know, you'll see guys that, that don't long toss on a straight line. This was something that Kurt Schilling really drilled home to me. Um, I worked with him, you know, all the way back in 2009 after his last shoulder surgery. And he's a really, you know, great teacher in, in terms of just kind of sharing his wisdom. And one of the things that always drove him bonkers was seeing guys play like three-way catch um, just because you'd invariably see, you know, one guy who was throwing across his body and one guy that, you know, was basically running balls to the arm side all the time. You know, and, and so it makes perfect sense if a guy's 250 feet away from you as you long toss, um, you know, and he's to the left of center, you're really teaching yourself to either stay closed or fly open with your delivery. Um, so, you know, make sure that you are actually throwing on a line. You know, some guys like to line themselves up between foul poles, um, you know, as a quick and easy way to make sure they're aligned. So, you know, those are kind of my big four is one, you know, don't just, you know, think that long toss covers all your needs. Two, don't become a good thrower and not a good pitcher. You know, three, you know, make sure you structure it correctly, impress them on the way in, not the way out. And then, you know, last but not least, make sure that you're, you're always, you know, long tossing on a straight line and reading ball flight because it can tell you a lot about what you're actually doing. For a third question, we have, what's your opinion on direct strengthening work for pitchers at the forearms, wrists, and hands? Um, admittedly, this is an area where I've definitely changed my mind over the years, dating back to when we, we first opened Cressy Sports Performance in 2007, when you know this industry of baseball strength conditioning wasn't really a thing. Um, initially, I thought that you got all that you needed from just strength training with all you know supportive grip work that came from holding barbells and dumbbells and cables and things like that. Um, however, looking back at it, it was a really hypocritical statement um, that was probably on par with you know people who said that you know all you needed for core work was squatting and deadlifting and magically everything else would would take care of itself. And you know we kind of put that to rest. You know when we started talking more about medicine ball work and demonstrated the hip shoulder separation that takes place with you know both hitting and throwing. Um, we know that in reality, baseball players encounter extreme ranges of motion, and so we you know we've challenged. You know, that with our core work, our medicine ball work, and you know, even looking at the shoulder, I've really gone out of my way over the years to emphasize that we have to get throwers strong in positions that actually matter. So if you look at a lot of like the conventional arm care programs, they do a lot of work with the arm at the side, you know, sideline external rotations, bands at the side, um, you know, and they don't necessarily strengthen people, you know, up in the positions that matter, you know, where they involve scapular upward rotation and, you know, length through the lats. But, you know, they also don't strengthen further back into external rotation where we know most of the work comes from positions of extreme external rotation to neutral. Um, so I just think it's important that we don't assume that arm care drills, you know, magically carry over to extreme range of motion that only happens at high speeds. And, and these advances have served us really well with respect to, you know, the core, the hips, the shoulder. But it, if we're being honest, I was probably ignorant when it came to, you know, what was going on at the forearm and the wrist. Um, and in reality, there's you know, considerably more excursion of the distal upper extremity than we previously appreciated. And that's probably something that we can see now more um, now that high-speed cameras are, are more, you know, abundant, you know, both in terms of just watching games on TV and having them at facilities, and even just, you know, good iPhones to be able to appreciate what's really happening um, in slow motion videos. Um, you know, they go through considerable pronation, supination, radial and ulnar deviation, wrist flexion, extension, 
you know, and the finer movements of the fingers, you know, that, that just simply can't be challenged by holding a barbell or a dumbbell. And interestingly, just recently, my, my good friend Regan Wong with the Texas Rangers was the, was the lead author on a study in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. It was called Relationships Between Clinically Measured Upper Extremity Physical Characteristics and Ball Spin Rate in Professional Baseball Pitchers. You know, his group found an association between certain kinds of wrist strength and acceleration and spin rate, which is certainly a, you know, a very hot topic in the baseball world with respect to, you know, the reduction of sticky stuff and, you know, players wanting to manipulate the baseball, whether it's, you know, trying to get four seams to climb or, you know, trying to get curveballs to, to bite. So, you know, beyond just that performance side of things, we also have research that clearly demonstrates that the forearm musculature, um, you know, particularly the common flexor tendon and, and most specifically the flexor carpi ulnaris has a protective effect, effect for the UCL during the layback phase of throwing. So when we lay our arm back, we're in that extremely, you know, externally rotated position. We have valgus stress and it's that kind of stress that tears an ulnar collateral ligament or, you know, may create a growth plate injury or, you know, flexor strain or ulnar neuritis or a collection of different, you know, medial tensile stress injuries or even lateral compressive injuries on the outside of the joint. Um, but what we know is that the flexor carpi ulnaris, you know, crosses the joint just like the UCL does. So it's a, it's a soft tissue, you know, restraint that can adapt, can get stronger to protect the passive restraint. So um, its importance is really magnified because pitching is the fastest motion recorded in sports. So, you know, and based on what we've seen in cadaver models, if the soft tissue structures, you know, that, that attach on the medial epicondyle weren't there, the UCL would rupture on every pitch. And, you know, it's probably a, you know, best indicator of this. Just this summer in another study in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, um, you know, study investigators found the medial elbow joint, you know, space, so the, the distance between the humerus and the ulna, um, you know, as it increased, which is indicative of the UCL effectively stretching, that increase happened concurrently with fatigue of the flexor carpi ulnaris as, as pitch count climbs. So as your flexors get more and more fatigued, your medial elbow gaps more, and theoretically your, your ligament is more susceptible to injuries. So as the passive restraint, excuse me, as the active restraints uh, you know, get more fatigue, the passive restraints take on more stress. So at the end of the day, you know, we have both performance and a health rationale for including direct work for the fingers, the wrist, and the forearms. But, you know, I think the, the devil's in the details here. How do we attack it? Um, and I think it's a delicate approach that goes beyond just doing a bunch of curls. You know, every, every you know, baseball put, pitcher on the planet wants to go and do a bunch of curls and press downs and wrist curls and things like that at the end of their upper body days. I think the key is to focus much, much more on the pronation, supination, and radial slash owner deviation components. Um, and there's definitely a place for targeted work for the individual fingers, plus a, a focus on the wrist extension component um, that typically isn't given much attention in, in classic lifting programs. Um, you know, how do we attack this? Personally, I like to use more isometric and eccentric work in these regards. Um, you know, a dowel rod with manual resistance or a steel club or Indian club can be particularly useful for training pronation, supination, radial and ulnar deviation. Um, the really important asterisk I want to throw here is that you do have to be very careful about adding too much volume too soon. I would steer clear of a lot of work, you know, for the, you know, the wrists and forearms and fingers during the season. And just remember that it's a lot of grip work to add on top of your normal lifting programs and any throwing that takes place. All these things are effectively throwing stress in some of the same tissues. So as a result, we tend to try to attack 
work in this regard early in the off season. It's actually right now I'm recording this on October 20th. We're doing a lot of this. Um, so we're trying to build a strong base for the remainder of the year when, you know, volume can be minimized and, you know, we can effectively just do enough to kind of preserve what we've already built. Um, you know, last but not least, remember that the elbow, I, I joke, it's the most claustrophobic joint in the body. So in other words, there are tons of structures that are packed into a very small area. You know, if you've ever had a chance to watch a Tommy John surgery, you see that they do an incision and you, you expect to just have this magical anatomical structure where you see the muscles and you see the tendons and you see the bone, and you see the ligaments. But in reality, there's a bunch of fascia, the intermuscular septum, your ulnar nerves right there. There's just a lot of gunk that you don't expect to be there. And there's even more gunk in athletes who throw hard because they lay down, you know, adaptive changes, whether it's, you know, bony changes, maybe they throw a whole bunch of tissue, you know, uh, you know, you'll see guys who have like almost like golf ball sized lumps of their flexor tendon because it's worked so hard to protect their UCL as they throw on at high levels. Um, so the tissue can get very dense and, and it's one reason why we're very proactive with recommending our athletes you know, get treatment on distal triceps, the common flexor tendon, pronator teres, you know, distal forearm where, you know, the, all those muscles kind of become more tendinous and get a little gritty. And even on the soft tissue of the hand, you know, looking at like, um, you know, some of the muscles that are on the, you know, the proximal aspect of the thumb, you know, all these things are working really, really hard to manipulate baseballs and throw them really fast. So we need to make sure that we take care of some of the tissue quality there. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, short answer to the question is you do need to train these qualities. And they're probably even more important, in my opinion, for advanced pitchers with good strength and conditioning backgrounds than they are for young throwers who are still putting more horsepower in the engine to learn how to move more efficiently. We know that advanced throwers, as an example, tend to use more lat during acceleration as compared to their novice counterparts. And that's just an example of athletes learning how to use big muscles to do big jobs. So early on in a training career, I think we want to establish, you know, strong lower half, you know, plenty of strength in, in the big musculature. And then as we get more and more advanced, we get a, you know, a, a better foundation in place. Then we can start to get a little more ambitious with respect to talking about wrist, hand, finger strength. And it should, you know, lead to some important improvements, both from a, you know, performance outcome standpoint and in terms of an injury reduction standpoint. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.